Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. ESG, or Environmental Social Governance, promises to help the bottom line and the planet at the same time. Is it too good to be true? Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of an episode digging into that very question. From NPR and WBUR Boston, I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. Tensions reach new heights over impeachment. The White House has been blocking witnesses from testifying in the House inquiry. President Trump's lawyer calls it unconstitutional. Trump calls it a scam. But Trump world is put further on the defensive. Two associates of his personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, face federal charges over alleged violations of campaign finance law. This from ABC News. Two men who reportedly helped the president's personal lawyer, Rudy Giuliani, in his efforts to get Ukrainian officials to investigate Joe Biden and his son, Hunter, arrested last night at Dulles International Airport as they were trying to leave the country. Anger even from some of the president's staunchest Republican allies, not about Ukraine, but about a shocking decision to pull U.S. troops from Syria. Turkey began targeting Kurdish militia immediately. Here's Republican Senator Lindsey Graham. We can't abandon the Kurds now. We can't turn it over to Turkey. To think that will work is really delusional and dangerous. And lights out. Up to one million households in California see their electricity cut as part of an effort by power companies to avoid horrific forest fires. Here's a California resident speaking out. Cutting the power off is very serious. So um, if you need any gas or anything right now, you you guys should have got that yesterday. If your view of impeachment has shifted, how and why? You can chime in anytime at onpointradio.org or on the Twitters and Facebook at On Point Radio. With us, an all-star lineup as ever from Washington, D.C., my colleague and friend Mara Liason. She's a national political correspondent for NPR. Mara, welcome back to On Point. Hi, David. And joining us from Arlington, Virginia, is Amna Navaz. She's a national correspondent for PBS NewsHour, a former foreign correspondent for NBC News. Amna, so glad to have you today. I think this is your first time on On Point. It is. Thanks for having me, David. Welcome, welcome. And from Hanover, New Hampshire, On Point Zone news analyst Jack Beattie joins us. Hello, Jack. Hello, David, Amna, and Mara. So let's start, let's start, why not, with impeachment. Um, let's talk about the latest news. Uh, Mara Lyson, help us understand their arrests of two associates of Rudy Giuliani, not only a notable figure in his own right, but of course, a personal lawyer for the president of the United States. What happened last night? What happened is these two men were arrested as they were about to leave the country with one-way tickets. And uh, they were associates of Rudy Giuliani's. They have reportedly helped him in his effort to get information from Ukraine about Joe Biden that would be helpful to the president in his reelection effort. And uh, they also had been subpoenaed by the House Impeachment Inquiry Committee. It's unclear what happens to them now that they've been arrested. But one little tidbit that I have to mention is the name of one of their companies was Fraud Guarantee. It's kind of like Mel Brooks is writing the script for this story. If only he were. If only he were. Uh, Amna, I'd say the production values might be even better in that case. But can you tell us a little bit about what these guys are said to have done? There had been some reporting by NPR, by Politico, and by others about some of their activities in Ukraine. You know, these are for campaign finance violations. You might think, well, that's not that big a deal. Why is what they're alleged to have done a big deal? 
Yeah, well, as, as Mara mentioned, that those campaigns finance violations are at the heart of this. Um, that uh, you know, working to connect Rudy Giuliani with people as they're seeking politically damaging information uh, in Ukraine about Joe Biden. There's a lot of details to pull out of this, but there is one other thing we should focus in on, and that was where some of the money was coming from. In the indictment, federal prosecutors have said that while these two men were engaged in those political activities in the U.S., funneling money through a limited liability company, that some of it was coming um, from a Russian donor. And they also said behind the scenes that they were targeting members of Congress here in the U.S., one Republican congressman in particular, we now know to be uh, former Congressman Pete Sessions of Texas. And that was all part of a lobbying campaign to remove the U.S. ambassador to the Ukraine. That is Marie Yovanovitch, who is actually scheduled to testify on Capitol Hill today as part of the House impeachment inquiry. There are a lot of overlapping details to this story. And there's a lot to unpack in that one indictment. I'm not. Tell us why it's important. I think that's a closed door uh, session today, right, with the ambassador. Tell us why her testimony is important and why the role of her uh, removal from office is important in this. Well, part of the allegation here is that uh, there were complaints, both from Ukrainian officials and others, that this U.S. ambassador to Ukraine was, quote unquote, bad mouthing President Trump, that she was not an ally to President Trump there. And we know that President Trump then went on to have her removed in May earlier this year. So the question is why? Um, you know, there are obviously a number of questions about a call that went on after she was removed from her post in July related to Ukraine. This was the one between President Trump and Ukrainian leader. Zelensky. Um, And I'm sure that they they have a lot of questions about what kind of pressure she felt when she was there, what she knew about some of these connections um, that were going on, if she knew anything at all about Rudy Giuliani's efforts in Ukraine as well. Jack Beatty, uh, the the White House and the State Department have tried uh, the best they can uh, to basically block witnesses from appearing. Earlier this week, several days ago, White House counsel Pat Cipollone uh, wrote in response to a series of uh, inquiries and subpoenas, a request for information from the, from the administration. He wrote that the House Democrats' actions violate, quote, the Constitution, the rule of law, and every past president. And he criticized the impeachment inquiry as an attempt to overturn effectively the results of the uh, presidential elections in 2016. How uh, strong a case did he make and what kind of reception did that letter get? Well, he made a political case. Um, He made no kind of legal case or constitutional case, according to the constitutional lawyers I've been reading. Uh, but it, uh, it, it, that, that claim, basically the president cannot be impeached, came in the same week that, that the president's lawyers represented to a New York uh, – to the district – in a, a case in New York about turning over Mr. Trump's uh, tax returns. They represented that a president can't be investigated. And, of course, we also learned from the Mueller report that a president can't be indicted in short – Donald Trump is a king. He's a monarch. With Richard Nixon, he says, when the president does it, it means it's not illegal. That seems to be his basic claim. Can't be impeached, can't be investigated, can't be indicted. I want to play a couple of clips of what the president has to say in response to things. Uh, Earlier this week, President Trump had said he kind of Excuse me. He, quote, sort of thrives off the controversy of impeachment. And last night, Trump shows how that worked. He was at a rally in Minneapolis. He was placing, as he said, a premium on entertainment values. And here he spoke about the thrill of winning the presidential election back in 2016. Do you remember the evening that we won? 
I think, look, forgetting me, I think it was one of all of us together because we all worked hard. I was the messenger, but we all worked hard. That was our victory, not my victory. But that was one of the greatest nights in the history of television. One of the greatest nights. So he's calling presidential elections one of the greatest nights in the history of television. One, you know, you imagine coverage of uh, the moon landing, one small step for man, one large step for the Nielsen ratings. Also last night at a campaign, that campaign rally in Minneapolis, President Trump attacked Democrats over the impeachment inquiry. The Democrats' brazen attempt to overthrow our government will produce a backlash at the ballot box, the likes of which they have never, ever seen before in the history of this country. More or less, and he was talking about the ballot box, but what do you make of the kind of rhetoric you're hearing about President Trump and his rejection of what the uh, Democrats are doing on the Hill? Well, the president, first of all, let's get this straight. He does not want to be impeached, but he does have a theory that impeachment would be can be used to his political benefit to rile up his base to say that the the Democrats are trying to overturn an election. And I just want to make he's, – he's on to something in one respect. The mo- two modern impeachments that we've had, Nixon and Clinton, came after they were reelected. We haven't had an impeachment in the president's first term, especially one so close to the time when voters get to go to the ballot box and decide if he should stay in office or not. And I think that that is where you're going to see a lot of Republicans landing. What the president did was wrong, inappropriate. I don't like it. I don't condone it. But I want the voters of Maine, Colorado, et cetera, to make the decision whether he should be removed from office or not. And um, that's he's he has turned this into a political battle because impeachment is a political act. Uh, it's not unlike what he did with the Mueller report. He wants to discredit the investigation itself um, so that he can say whatever the result is, is is not legitimate. But I just want to go back to the, the, the comment he made about the greatest uh, evening so, in the history of TV. Yeah. That's yeah. so revealing. The president mm-hmm. is TV. Mm-hmm. He sees everything as a TV spectacle and an episode in a TV show where he's the protagonist fighting against his enemies, whether they're the impeaching Democrats or marauding immigrants or the the press. Um, that's That was one of the most kind of honest statements he's ever made. That's how he sees his presidency. The greatest thing in the history of television. Speaking of TV, uh, Florida Congressman Matt Gates, a Republican, one of the president's most fervent supporters on Capitol Hill, spoke to reporters on Tuesday morning after the State Department blocked Ambassador Gordon Sondland from testifying. What we see in this impeachment is a kangaroo court and Chairman Schiff is acting like a malicious Captain Kangaroo. He lied about the Russia investigation, that he had more than circumstantial evidence. He lied about meeting with the whistleblower prior to the whistleblower's uh, ultimate uh, testimony or uh, writing of, of their complaint. And we would like to unpack the last set of shift lies regarding the Volcker testimony before we go to the next set of shift lies on Sunland. A very uh, partisan uh, casting of Schiff. I, I, I must say, I think we can all agree that it's really less a malicious Captain Kangaroo than a malicious Mr. Greenjeeds. But Anna Nawaz, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, so, uh, Ambassador Sondland, excuse me, Sondland's attorneys say he will actually testify next, th- next Thursday in uh, flouting effectively the State Department's edict. What does it do for the Foreign Service to have this level of uh, uh, an injunction essentially by, by the State Department saying you cannot go do this testimony even though it's required by Congress? Well, you know, even uh, Ambassador Sondland himself uh, issued a statement saying he was deeply disappointed that he wasn't able to testify on that day. I can tell you from 
number of conversations I've had with folks at the State Department over the last several months, the morale is just about as low as it's ever been because they see themselves and have seen themselves for a while now slowly being co-opted into picking a side on political battle lines. And that is not what they are used to doing. I mean, I've seen these folks on the ground at work, out in the field, back here in D.C., and, uh, you know, they don't want to be involved in this. And, and right now they're being asked to pick a side. We're talking about the impeachment inquiry, its effects and affairs, diplomatic, political and more. Stick around. I'm David Folkenflik and this is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. If you need to hire... You need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform that lets you find candidates fast. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash on point. That's Indeed.com slash on point. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. A recent episode featured a debate about ESG, or environmental social governance. This sounds like more work than just putting your money into a social impact fund. It's a lot more work. Yeah. Anybody who thinks there's an easy solution here is either engaged in puffery, greenwash, or deceiving themselves. Stick around until the end of this podcast for a preview of the episode. This is On Point. I'm David Folkenflik. We're talking about the latest developments in the ever-changing impeachment inquiry story. You can join our conversation. What are your thoughts on the president's withdrawal of troops in Syria to allow a Turkish invasion? Follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. I'm here with an all-star panel, Mara Liasson, national political correspondent for NPR. Amna Nawaz, she's national correspondent for PBS NewsHour, an experienced hand on foreign policy matters. And, of course, our own On Point news analyst, Jack Beatty. Uh, picking up the question of... Uh, of impeachment, you know, you've seen a number of developments in recent days that we haven't even gotten to. A second whistleblower confirmed by the lawyers for the first whistleblower we know of. Uh, and we've seen also public opinion on impeachment and the impeachment inquiry shifting. Uh, one of the things that really struck me and struck a lot of uh, uh, folks on the Navaz was the uh, – the way in which there seems to be a majority of Americans right hovering around it who are in favor of an impeachment and a strong, you know, um, a, a lot of Americans favor actually outright removing the president from office. What have you seen in these polls that strikes you? I'm seeing exactly that. There's now a number of polls, the latest of which is a Fox News poll, which caught the eye of the president and was very unhappy about, showing that 51 percent of Americans did support impeachment. And that mirrors what we've seen in other polls more recently, a PBS NewsHour, uh, Marist NPR poll as well. And that has shifted quite a bit. It's really worth pointing out just over the last three weeks. And remember, it feels a lot longer, but the inquiry's really only been going on less than three weeks. And we've seen public opinion 
opinion shift dramatically over that time, moving towards more people supporting that inquiry moving forward. So, you know, I I think one of the things the Democrats were weighing, as you saw over the months and months leading up to the actual announcement by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi that, yes, we're moving forward with a formal inquiry, was whether or not they felt they had a case they could take to the American people, right? Was there an issue that was simple enough, clean enough, um, in their minds, sort of definitive enough that they could say, this is where we're going to fight. And and this was the call, this one call between President Trump and the Ukrainian president, in which he seemed to be pressuring them to take action to damage a political rival and, and potentially hold up U.S. aid to that country as part of that. This is the issue that they've hung their hat on. It seems to be catching on with the American people and and the way that this is playing out so far in terms of the House expanding its inquiry further, the White House pushing back aggressively. It seems to be pushing more Americans in favor of it moving forward. At least moving forward. But I want to offer a cautionary note about these Sure thing, Mark. It's really Mm -hmm. important to differentiate between the polls that are asking for, do you support the impeachment inquiry, which is like an investigation, and do you support impeaching and removing the president from office? The high watermark on impeachment and removal is that Fox News poll, 51 percent. That is not an overwhelming bipartisan groundswell for removing the president from office. Um, So I think it's really important to watch this. I still think that telling voters 12 months, 11 months, 10 months before an election that they do not get to exercise their sacred right to decide who sits in the Oval Office, whether President Trump stays or not, is a big deal. Now, a lot of Democrats say, look, he's not going to be removed anyway. There's never going to be 20 Republican senators who flip. So impeachment in the House, which is in effect an indictment, becomes kind of like a censure. But I still think I have not seen the huge groundswell for impeachment um, that other people are seeing in these polls. Jack Beatty, before we take uh, calls uh, from some of our listeners weighing in on this, what do you think of that, uh, that proposition, the idea that, that people may say by a 5 10 percent margin they want the president to go through the impeachment inquiry or they might, may even want him removed, but that this is fluid and that they may resent having that choice taken away? I think it's a real danger. And, you know, the president is really in the position of a retreating army. When armies retreat, they fall back on their supplies, on, on, their, on their ammunition, and they become more formidable. Similarly, the president, he's falling back on his core supporters. Uh, you know, the 42 million Americans who listen to Russian company, those are his core and more and more, he's going to pitch directly to them. Not that he's been uh, been Catholic in his pitches at all, but mm-hmm. occasionally he's made he's tried to reach out beyond that. Now it's going to be the hardcore. And if we know anything about these this hardcore of Trump supporters, they're they're impervious to facts, perhaps even to what we would regard as reality. And they're a potential. The president has has waived them as a kind of potential uh, uh, disruptor of the political process. I think, it, in other words, as he gets forced back on his supply, it's a dangerous moment for the country. But but you also see in polls that the among his supporters, the number of those supporters who say they strongly support him has gone way up. So he hasn't made his base bigger, but he has made them more intensely loyal and energized. And let's listen to the voices of some folks who are listening to us today and calling in with their thoughts on this. I'd like to first go to Worcester, Ohio. John, thanks for listening. What are your thoughts on all this? Yeah, I consider myself uh, 
an unaffiliated uh, leftist, and uh, I'm against the uh, the impeachment. I don't support uh, uh, Trump. I, uh, in fact, I oppose most of his positions, and I'm no Rush fan of, by any means, just the opposite. But I believe that uh, Trump is uh, being uh, attacked by uh, an even more sinister force than himself, and I think it's the military-industrial complex, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the media, which incorporates that, because if you just look up uh, CIA Operation Mockingbird Control of the Media, there's a documentation that the CIA has been massively infiltrating uh, the media over sure, the years. And, this, and this, is, this is an argument about the deep state. So we're hearing a voice there from John about the idea that this is something that you know is ingrained, that forces are arrayed against the president uh, outside his power. Thanks so much uh, for your call, John. I want to take a call also from Stillwater, Oklahoma. JT, thanks for listening. What are your thoughts here? I'm curious about the first part of the impeachment clause in the Constitution. It says a president can be impeached for treason, for bribery, treason, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. I'm wondering if maybe uh, bribery or treason might be more relevant for an impeachment inquiry. All right, JT, thanks for that uh, call and that question. Amna Nawaz, I assume we're talking here a little bit about uh, about Ukraine. Is there a way in which uh, that would fit the bill, I guess? I mean, this, these are political decisions and judgments, not, not legal ones in a sense because it's being handled by Congress, not the courts. These are political decisions. I'd to underscore the point Mara made earlier, and we can't say that enough as this investigation moves forward. Look, I think one of the things that, that they could be looking at right now is, is the you know, that President Trump's position has hardened in that letter we referenced earlier, too, that it's giving the impression he sort of considers himself above this, that the entire inquiry is, is not legitimate, is seeking to overturn his election. The more the White House stands in the way of the investigation moving forward, there is the argument to be made that could support an article of impeachment that charges him with ex- obstructing Congress, right, um, in, in sort of unrelated to the specifics of what happened in the dealings with Ukraine or you not, or not. So you know, I think that's something that they're considering. But again, the, the inquiry has expanded so much just in this week alone, in addition to documents and um, things they're seeking from the White House. You've also got subpoenas issued for documents and testimony from the Department of Defense and from the Department of State and from the Office of Management and Budget. And uh, you've got a number of different House committees looking into different aspects of this. I don't think it's coalesced around a single point of target yet. Well, it has coalesced around at least that phone call and the president's public calls for China and Ukraine to investigate the Bidens. And what's so interesting about the Republican answer to that is most of the the responses from Republicans have been about process. They're not doing the impeachment inquiry correctly. They haven't had a vote. They haven't given Republicans certain rights to interview witnesses. But very few Republicans will answer yes or no. Is it right for the president to publicly call on foreign countries to investigate a political rival. that That's where they don't have their message yet. But also how the White House is responding to all these subpoenas is very unclear. Pat Cipollone the other day issued an eight-page scorching letter saying we're not going to cooperate at all mm-hmm. until you do something. He wouldn't really say exactly what the criteria was. But now we're hearing that Ambassador Sondland might testify. Former Ambassador Yavanovich might testify. So it's she, very she, unclear – she literally Pardon? just walked into the Capitol for her deposition yeah. uh, today. So it's unclear how much they are cooperating or not cooperating. And developments keep playing. I mean, these these uh, associates and clients of Rudy Giuliani, Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman, you know, they could flip or they could, you know, clam up. We don't know. Uh, this morning, 
seemingly unrelated but not utterly unrelated. There was a ruling from the D.C. Circuit Court, two to one ruling uh, that ordered an, the accounting firm Mazars to comply with a congressional subpoena for President Trump's business records. And that's been a key part of another inquiry. But there are ways in which people have been concerned that the president's refusal to participate in this could uh, aggregate and become, help accelerate or propel some of the impeachment fever or impeachment counts themselves. This has put a lot of Republicans, uh, understandably, in a tough space. Uh, uh, I know that the Dispatch, which is the new conservative uh, outlet just started by Stephen Hayes, uh, formerly of the Weekly Standard, and Jonah Goldberg, formerly of the National Review. The Morning Dispatch uh, did a count, and by its uh, its uh, registration – or excuse me, its account, 24 G- Republican senators and 34 Republican House members have distanced them. excuse me, that's about Syria. I thought it was about Ukraine. We'll get to the Syria in a moment. Forgive me. In terms of staying on the Ukraine impeachment for a moment, um, this has been a very difficult thing for Republicans. Here's an exchange that Republican Senator Cory Gardner had uh, in Colorado with uh, uh, – uh, he's up for re-election in Colorado. Yesterday, he refused to answer questions from reporters about President Trump's phone call with the Ukrainian president. But the question is, is it appropriate for a president Look, to Look, I think be we are going to have an investigation and it's a, it's a, a nonpartisan investigation. But Senator, it's a nonpartisan no investigation. It's an answer that you get from a very serious investigation. But would you be okay with it if it was a Democrat asking a foreign government? Look, here's what we're doing. What we saw immediately was a jump to a very partisan, very partisan, serious use of a tool in the Constitution. So, Chuck Beatty, here's a moment where you've got a Republican senator. He's up for reelection in a purple state. Uh, Five times he's asked, is it inappropriate – the question that Mara Lyson just laid out, is it inappropriate to pressure – a foreign government to do investigation that might help you in a political race. And he simply would not address the question. Today, we've also received news that uh, Larry Hogan, uh, Jr., uh, the mayor, uh, governor of Maryland, has become the third Republican governor to say that he thinks an impeachment inquiry is warranted. Where do you see Republicans at the moment on all this? Well, I think they're looking at that NPR poll this week. Uh, it said that two-thirds of Republican voters will vote against any uh, GOP congressman or congressperson or senator who votes to impeach or who even says a good a word against the president, presumably, they're politically uh, terrified. Now, if the registration day for um, their primary opponents, you know, if, if that had all passed, if this were in the spring and they didn't have and it was clear that it was too late for the primary opponent to emerge – you might find courage among them, but that's not the situation now. Uh, and and uh, it would it would take a brave Republican indeed, or someone like Mitt Romney, who has you know really extraordinary prestige in his state and I think nationally, to say no, we're not going to go along with this. I'd like to take a call now from Wakefield, Rhode Island. Phil, thanks for calling in. What are your thoughts here? Hey, everybody! Thanks for having me. I love the show. Um, I am so tired of hearing about impeachment. Look, Trump used his power for personal gain and then lied about it. Who's surprised about that? Nobody is surprised about that. And we also know exactly what's going to happen. The House is going to vote for impeachment, and then the Senate is going to acquit him because the Republicans can't grow his spine. We know exactly what's going to happen. Most people I know are tired of hearing about it. They They want politicians to be talking about the fact that their premiums are going up and up, they're getting bankrupt, bankrupted by their health care deductibles. People have to work two jobs to make it by. Meanwhile, all the noise we're hearing, I mean, we're halfway through the show today, and this is the only thing we've talked about. 
I really think we need to move on and start talking about health care and mm-hmm. wages and the fact that we still have children in cages at our border. Let's, I, we, we know exactly what's going to happen. Let's stop talking about it. Hear you loud and clear, Phil. I jumped ahead a little bit when I mentioned Syria. I do want to go to that now. Congressman uh, John Schmikas, a Republican from Illinois, told St. Louis radio station KMOX that President Trump's decision to remove U.S. troops from Syria, allowing uh, Turkish forces to stream into the country, was a game changer for him. I'm heartbroken. I, in fact, I, I called uh, my chief of staff in, in D.C. I said, pull my name off the I support Donald Trump list. I mean, this was just... We have just stabbed our allies in the back. The Kurds go back all the way to the first Gulf War. We protected their airspace in the no-fly zone. Uh, They have all the areas have been loyal U.S. allies, supporters, and been doing well. Uh, This this has just shocked, embarrassed, and angered me. And forgive me, that's John Shimkus, a Republican from Illinois. Shimkus notably is not running for re-election. Amna Nawaz, he talks about uh, the Kurds there. The Kurds have been a force in uh, in Syria uh, fighting against ISIS with our collaboration. Tell us a little bit about, about what's transpired over the past week, 10 days. Yeah, it really has just been in the last week. Look, for, for context, the, the longstanding and longstanding in the last few years, while there's been this conflict in Syria unfolding, the longstanding U.S. policy has been, yes, while Turkey is a NATO ally, uh, the U.S. has allied itself with Kurdish-led forces in northeastern Syria to help fight ISIS. And the reason that anyone can say, as President Trump has often said, that we have defeated ISIS, that we were able to take back the capital of the caliphate in Raqqa two years ago, was because... Because that was a fight led by these forces, which we now call the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces. The problem is that there's a faction of that force that Turkey does not like. They consider them to be a terrorist force and uh, have made that very clear. It's always been a tension the U.S. has sort of balanced, and they've managed to hold Turkey at bay from launching any offenses into the area. That changed on Sunday. President Trump had a private call with President Erdogan of Turkey that, by our reporting, kind of caught everybody by surprise, including senior members of his own national security and military establishment, and uh, basically decided, you know, Turkey, we're told by senior uh, department, State Department officials, Turkey said, we're going to do this. We're going to be moving in, and uh, we know that you have a handful of forces on the ground. You're going to want to move them out, which is exactly what happened. That night, the president tweeted that they were going to be removing those uh, U.S. forces and and that Turkey was basically going to be moving ahead. Now, since then, the U.S. has said, look, we don't want this to happen. We think this is a big mistake. We don't want Turkey to do this. At the same time, they've not really done anything to stop it. And so as we've seen in the news over the last couple of days, the Turks have launched a major offensive in the area. Tens of thousands of civilians have been affected. Their estimate there could be hundreds of thousands displaced, and we have no idea how long it's going to go on. All right, we're going to pick up a little bit more with Syria after the break. We'll also be plunging into the state of the 2020 race. We want my guests to stick around. I'd love for you to stick around. How are your uh, uh, allegiances shifting as you think about the presidential run for November 2020? I'm David Folkenflik, and this is On Point. Three decades ago, Sterling Cuneo was an angry, violent teenager facing life without parole. Today, he's a celebrated author and a peacemaker. 
His journey is a window into how violence is perpetuated in this country, but it's also a story about how people change. There's no better example of a person who's prepared to be released. And about people changing the system. We have to reimagine what we're doing, because what we're doing isn't working. This is Cell Blocks to Mountaintops, a podcast and video series. Subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This is On Point. I'm NPR media correspondent David Fulkenflick. In other news this week, the Supreme Court kicks off a new term with cases about LGBT discrimination in the workplace, blockbuster allegations against former NBC News host Matt Lauer, and Alabama's capital city of Montgomery elects its first black mayor. Stephen Reed, a state probate judge, won 67 percent of the vote. Montgomery was the first capital of the Confederate States of America, later became an important focus of the civil rights movement. Reed joins the mayors of the cities of Birmingham and Selma in Alabama. They are all also African-American. You can join the conversation about the 2020 race. Follow us on the Twitters and Facebook at On Point Radio. I'm here today with Mara Lyason, national political correspondent for NPR. Amna Nawaz, she's national correspondent for PBS NewsHour, and our own On Point News analyst, Jack Beatty. Amna, I want to uh, come back to the question of American policy in Syria with regard to the Kurds, with regard to the Turks. Uh, U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo uh, denied the uh, claim that President Trump had permitted Turkey's invasion of Syria. In this interview, the first voice you hear is from PBS NewsHour's Judy Woodruff. Does the U.S. take responsibility for whatever the outcome is because the U.S. has given Turkey a green light? Yeah, well, that's just false. Uh, The United States didn't give Turkey a green light. President Trump spoke with President Erdogan, and after the call, the president said that Turkey would be moving in. U.S. forces were withdrawn from the area. Amna, again, that uh, interview with the Secretary of State was done with your colleague, Judy Woodruff of PBS NewsHour. I really have two questions with you. First off, is it fair to say, did the U.S. give Turkey a green light there to go ahead and invade Syria by removing troops and uh, in conversation? So let me just say it was a remarkable interview <laughs> that Judy did with Secretary Pompeo. I encourage everyone to go watch the whole thing. We aired it in full with no edits. But to your point, nobody knows what happened and what was said on the call between President Trump and President Erdogan, other than anyone who was on the line. And we haven't gotten a readout of that call. It's been reiterated since then by senior State Department officials to me that there was never a green light issued. They went so far as to say, in fact, we would say we gave a red light. Um, meaning we told them not to do this. And their public messaging since then has been, we think this is a mistake. We don't want them to be doing this. We're doing everything we can to stop it now. At the same time, it's sort of a difficult position to hold when the U.S., moved its forces out of the area. There would be no reason to do that unless you knew that there was going to be a Turkish invasion coming. And there's also an argument to be made that if you leave your forces there, they won't invade as they haven't done and they've been pushed back from doing for several years. So, you know, it's a tenuous position to hold. It's the only line they have right now. But they also say that they're actively engaged in trying to put pressure on the Turks to stop and also threatening economic sanctions, as we've seen. So, Amna, it sounds to me like you're saying there really isn't a clear policy towards this, except that, that right now we're allowing uh, the Turks to do what they want. I believe the U.N. intervened uh, – excuse me, the U.S. intervened at the U.N. not to not to block this. 
They did indeed. And I think the only clear policy right now is that there's been a total clear policy reversal that was uh, brought about by a single phone call that caught a lot of the establishment by surprise and everyone's sort of scrambling to catch up to see what's happening. Look, and that sends shockwaves through a lot of parts of the military uh, and, and diplomatic establishment for a number of reasons, because a single phone call like that, in which uh, a number of people aren't briefed, the same kinds of principals who are involved in those sorts of decision makings and negotiations weren't involved at this point, And it can change an entire U.S. policy over a matter of minutes. It's worrying to a lot of national security experts. And- uh, Jack Beatty, uh, you know, I note that – and I was a little premature in saying it, but I note the conservative and news site, The Dispatch, uh, said something like 24 Republican senators, 38 House members have distanced themselves uh, from the White House's new syrup policy with only a handful uh, actively praising it. I, I think it's, you know, it's interesting. We have uh, uh, the president and the Ukraine issue seems to have been prompted by his desire to find something on Joe Biden and on his son, Hunter Biden. Uh, but of course, you know, he is not without foreign interests himself that are a little more clear-cut. In 2015, then-businessman Donald Trump was interviewed on Breitbart News by Stephen Bannon, who went on to become Trump's campaign CEO and then in the White House, uh, chief strategist for President Trump. Back then in 2015, Bannon asked Trump whether Turkey was a reliable partner. Here was Trump's answer. What do you do with Turkey? Is Turkey a reliable partner? I know they're a NATO ally. Are they a reliable partner? Well, I also have I have a little conflict of interest because I have a major, major building in Istanbul, and it's a tremendously successful job. It's called Trump Towers, two towers instead of one. Not the usual one, it's two. And I've gotten into Turkey very well, and they're amazing people. They're incredible people. They have a strong leader. Two towers instead of one from the, from the then businessman Donald Trump, uh, and it professed a little conflict of interest. Is that the sort of thing that we should take into account as we – uh, consider the president's uh, twists and turns on this? I just don't see how you can leave it out of account. Uh, there's no there's no record of this phone call that we have. It wasn't transparent. And you can you simply can't um, uh, pretend that that corrupt motives don't enter into the president's thinking. We see that again and again. I think the Ukraine call is an example of that. Uh, uh, you know, where essentially he says, we'll give you, uh, you know, but, uh, but we want a favor, though. Uh, so, uh, and, and of course, uh, these, there, there are, there's that interest in, in uh, Turkey. There are apparently others. Uh, president Erdogan was there at the inauguration of this um, Trump, Towers. The president wants us to get two towers, and 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 the the entanglement of his business empire with his role as president. It just is built into the, it it's built into the package of ethically compromised human material. That is Donald Trump. It also could be bigger than that. You know, one of the things, one of the criticisms of this move, and it came from Mitch McConnell of all people, was that by abandoning the, the Kurds, you are uh, Senate leader, right. You are abandoning the Kurds. You are strengthening Russia and Iran. Israel is really freaked out about this because if you don't have the Kurds kind of holding your um, line there, Iran gets a stronger hand. And I think when that Security Council resolution was vetoed by the U.S. Russia and the U.S. were the only two against it. So this is yet again the president acting in the interest of Vladimir Putin against his own Pentagon and um, 
White House advisors on foreign policy. Politically, I think the president has a strong leg to stand on. Most people want the U.S. out of foreign wars. Most people don't know who the Kurds are. In Wisconsin, they probably think they're about cheese. Um, So it's not a big domestic political issue, but it is interesting how fiercely Republicans have pushed back against him on this. You mentioned that count from the dispatch, uh, 24 Republican senators, 34 uh, House members. They can't criticize him on impeachment. This is a safer place because it doesn't have domestic political ramifications, but it's interesting how fiercely they have come out against this. It's almost as if uh, Syria is a proxy for their frustrations about him that they can't mention elsewhere. Um, now I want to, before we're going to turn to the 2020 uh, election politics in just a moment, but first we have a question for, on Facebook from one of our listeners. Kellyanne Wicker asked, we're all, will our allies ever be able to truly count on the U.S. in the future, or are we truly fair-weather friends? Well, this is the other big question and big concern that's been raised among um, just current uh, officials in the government and also national security experts who've been watching this, which is, look, the U.S. has had a long partnership with these Kurdish-led forces, both both in northern Iraq and now in northeastern Syria. If that alliance can be shifted with a phone call in a matter of minutes without consultation, and everyone was caught by surprise. I mean, I spoke yesterday to the U.S. representative for the political arm of those Kurdish-led forces there, they had no idea that this was coming. And they had no idea that the Turkish incursion would happen as quickly as it did. I think it sends um, it sends a message uh, of unreliability and uncertainty, which from a national security perspective is incredibly worrying. Let's turn Jack Omna, Beattie I, to... May, may, okay, go ahead, Jack. Uh, may I just ask, uh, Omna, in your interview with that woman, uh, you asked her, would you trust the United States again? I was really uh, surprised by her answer. Yeah, and indeed, I did ask her only because, you know, earlier in the day, some of those senior State Department officials had said one of the reasons we want the Turks to stop this is because we still have work left to do with those forces, which really caught a lot of us off guard because we thought, why would you think you can partner with these forces anymore? But obviously, the understanding is there is still work to be done on the ground in terms of holding that ground, supporting these forces and, and making sure there is no ISIS resurgence, either to, you know, come back and blow back against the U.S., but also against our Europe. European and NATO allies. Last night, the, she, she said, we, you know, we would be open to it only because at this point, those forces have two choices. They continue to come back to the U.S. because they need some kind of support or to the point that Mara was making earlier, this may force them to then either go closer to Bashar al-Assad in Syria or closer to Iran or closer to Russia. And all of those things are problems for the U.S., want to move now, Jack Beatty, to the 2020 race in a campaign speech in New Hampshire on Wednesday. Here's some of our topics converge. Joe Biden became just the latest Democrat to call for President Trump's impeachment. To preserve our Constitution, our democracy, our basic integrity, he should be impeached. That's not only because of what he's done. To answer whether he has committed acts of sufficient to warrant impeachment is obvious. We see it in Trump's own words. Jack Beatty, obviously impeachment got a turbo boost from the question of uh, Trump's pressuring the Ukrainian president to try to 
in a sense, investigate uh, the Biden's operations in Ukraine, both what Joe Biden did officially as vice president and what his son did uh, privately. Uh, what did it take for Joe Biden to do this? Why has he been the most uh, seemingly reluctant to call for impeachment? Well, the reporting on this uh, sort of excavates his longstanding feelings about uh, congressional procedure. And really, that shows one of the weaknesses of his campaign and of his appeal. He's an institutionalist. We do things, you know, impeachment is the business of the House. And he seems to think of himself still as a man of the Senate, or at least he did. But but, uh, he's, he's cast that off. And just in the nick of time, because... Of course, he's. It looks like the Trump um, uh, campaign is is going to is already, of course, smearing him with with Ukraine, with these charges un, un, unballasted, just made up about his son's corruption and so on, and his own uh, role in vice president's own role in that. And then we learned last night, Rudy Giuliani saying, "Oh, I'm going to go to Romania. Where do we get what Romania has to tell us?" And then the Financial Times this week reports a a Trump. Uh, Aparachik was out there and uh, the, he came back saying, oh, the Chinese have got, a, got some material for us, too. In other words, Trump is he's being impeached for looking to foreign help to subvert our election system. And he's openly doing it to uh, subvert the next election. The, 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 according to some people, the idea is subvert, you know, d- destroy Joe Biden up with Elizabeth Warren. And then he runs against, uh, well, a woman. Mara Lyson, let's turn to uh, to Elizabeth Warren, who has been rising in the polls, showing strength, has kind of a consistent message, a clear sense of who she is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, a little hiccup this week, uh, conservative Washington Free Beacon dipped back into local municipal records of a school board uh, and reported uh, board minutes from the early 1970s uh, about her contract being approved, uh, renewed essentially for a second year as, a, I believe, a substitute teacher there. Uh, they sort of seemed to make the claim that Elizabeth Warren's story on the campaign trial that she had been fired as a teacher for being pregnant uh, had been disproved. Uh, the candidate, uh, Warren, responded with a video uh, that she posted on Twitter. When I was 22 years old, I had an experience that a lot of women will recognize. I had been promised a job for the next year, all hired and set to go. And then when they realized that I was pregnant, the job was given to someone else. Now, this was a long time ago, but we know this kind of stuff still happens today. Um, Mara Lassen, help us frame uh, this story, the importance of it to her appeal and uh, where our knowledge stands, what it does for us well, as, as citizens trying think, to evaluate her. Yeah, I don't think it's going to dent her appeal much inside the Democratic primary. It's hard to imagine uh, any other candidate going after her for this, especially when women voters are so important in the Democratic primary. Uh, what she's arguing is that her contract was removed and then later, I'm sorry, was renewed. approved, yeah. renewed. And then later, when she started showing uh, and was visibly pregnant, they kind of said, gee, we're going to give your job to somebody else. But I think what this symbolize, uh, signifies is that Elizabeth Warren, who has been steadily on the rise in the Democratic primary, uh, now has in, men, in several polls nationally and in the early states sharing the front runner status with Joe Biden, if not surpassing him, is going to come in for some scrutiny that she hasn't had so far. Um, she's had a really smooth ride. She's certainly run the best campaign in the Democratic race. Uh, grassroots enthusiasm organization 
money. She's got a message. She also tapped in like no other candidate to this pent up desire among Democrats for government action on big problems like income inequality, wage stagnation, corporate corruption, climate change, things that have been really suppressed by kind of Tea Party Republicans and then Trump. Um, so, But she has not really been challenged. And what I'm looking for next week in Ohio when the Democrats debate again in Westerville is if someone will take her on. You know, um, Mitch Landrieu, who's a centrist Democrat who mayor of New or- former mayor of New Orleans who passed up on a run of his own, said Elizabeth Warren has a plan for everything except for how she's going to beat Donald Trump. And mm-hmm. that's, you know, that's one of the concerns among Democrats. She's certainly popular. The primary electorate loves her. But is she too far to the left to beat Trump in a general election? Democrats are worried about that. Her her contract for two days a week, uh, a lot of people blasting on Twitter, uh, the reporting, arguing. I think that some fairness that's that the Washington Free Beacon did have a data point, but perhaps not a fully rounded story. We've been hearing from Mara Liason. She's national political correspondent for NPR. Thanks for joining us today, Mara. Thank you. And, uh, of course, we've been joined uh, for the, her first appearance on On Point, Amna Nawaz. She's national correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Thanks so much for joining us, Amna. Thank you, David. And we've been joined also by our own On Point news analyst, Jack Beatty. Have a great weekend, Jack. Thank you, David. You can continue the conversation. Get the On Point podcast or website, onpointradio.org. You can follow us on Twitter. Find us on Facebook at On Point Radio. On Point is produced by Anna Bauman, Justine Daum, Eileen Amata, Stefano Katsonis, Allison Poli, James Ross, Dory Scheimer, Alex Schroeder, Grace Tatter, and Adam Waller with help from Sharif Campbell, Jeffrey Line, David Marino, and Sidney Wertheim. Our executive producer, that's Karen Schiffman, me. I'm David Folkenflick, and this is On Point. <laughs> Support for this podcast comes from Is Business Broken, a podcast from BU Questrom School of Business. Listen on for a preview of one of the episodes. Can Profit Motive Save the Planet? Is a company that takes the climate into account a better investment? How about one that pays workers a living wage and champions transparency and board diversity? That's the idea of ESG, or Environmental Social Governance sounds like a wonderful story. You can make more money, you can save the planet at the same time. Almost no one is going to turn that down. It's a story that Andy King of Questrom and Veet Hennish of the Wharton School challenged during a recent event at Questrom. Professor King played the critic, who says these are problems for regulation to solve, not markets. As a famous economist said to me, you can't fix externalities with the profit motive, because the profit motive is not linked to externalities. Externalities are the byproduct of pursuing profits. So you can't fix them by getting people to even look harder at profits. Meanwhile, Veet emphasized that ESG can be an important part of the solution. Regulation matters, and we need better regulation. And we need to reallocate trillions of dollars of capital over time to the climate transition alone for getting social justice, racial justice, and other ESG issues. We're going to need the profit motive for that. No government regulation is going to reallocate tens of trillions of dollars of capital alone. It's going to be investors who are looking at current government regulation and future government regulation and trying to connect the dots. Find the full episode by searching for Is Business Broken? wherever you listen to podcasts and learn more about the Mayrotra Institute for Business, Markets and Society at ibms.bu.edu. 